0: All right, so uh, this is episode 33 of the Apex Vaulting Podcast. Um, we have Noah Kaminsky on. Uh, Noah, tell us a little bit about your background, uh, how you got involved with the vault. Why did you start coming into Apex? Um, I have a plethora of topics that I want to go over with you, um, but give us a little bit of your background and what track.
1: Hey, Bronco. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast Um as a recent member of the apex community it's uh i guess it means a lot to be sitting here in the first place
0: hey no problem man
1: a little bit on my background is that i'm a middle school science teacher at a through k-12 public school in new york city and um i came to pole vaulting late in life i would say i started pole vaulting when i began my college track career at cornell university um And I was doing that for the decathlon. I would never pole vaulted before. So I knew that I needed to find a coach to help me get to where I wanted to be in pole vault. Um, So I started working with a club coach in the area. And uh, I vaulted for about a semester uh, my freshman year at Cornell. And then I didn't continue doing track and field my sophomore year. And, uh, started doing other things. So that was then graduate from college, get my master's, uh, start teaching. And then seven years later, about a year ago, June, 2017, I decided I want the pole vault again for the first time. Okay. Yep. Uh, and the history on that is that my brother vaulted with you for right. his high school experience.
0: Right. And, and just, you know, I'm sure Jesse would uh, agree with this, uh, your brother Jesse's not as athletic as you. You've seen um, it a lot. But yeah, I
1: don't but know. I would argue that he's pretty damn athletic.
0: Right, but I think there there is a difference between the two of you guys. I mean, just think about the rips and poles you were on tonight versus what Jesse would normally be on. But Je- Jesse jumped twelve six in high school, and um, what did you jump while you were in college?
1: In college, I think my best jump was ten feet six inches.
0: Right, right, and and again. I think Noah's a little bit better athlete um the the thing is obviously um he was a multi I think you know a lot of times with multis maybe pole vault coaches just don't take them seriously i, I have no idea and they they sometimes either try to rush things or I, I don't even know what happens but so you end up jumping ten six um you've been at the club for for some time um now it's like about a year um have we have we jumped at meets with crossbar? What have you jumped at a meet?
1: I jumped eleven feet three inches back in January. Right. Yeah. But I also wasn't training consistently. Like right. I, was coming I mean, in once every three weeks.
0: Well, yeah, and I mean, look, we we could even bring up that topic. I mean, that's an interesting topic. Is that um, you know when you are post collegiate, the competition opportunities are not plentiful. You know, right. so yeah, you don't get to compete that often. But I mean, definitely, you know your jumps look way, way better. I mean, you literally couldn't turn when you first came here. That's right. Yeah. I mean, you were just kind of like helicopter in the air and now now you've got a full jump. It it looks way better. Um, But I guess some of the things that I want to talk about with you is more even not just pole vault, but kind of like ideas about track and coaching track. I mean, what are some things that you found? Because, you know, you also coached at your school with track and stuff like that. What are some of the things that you uh, came across while you were coaching track? What are some strengths and weaknesses in our sport from a coaching perspective? That's what I want to talk about with you. Um, I mean, obviously, we can hash out all the pole vault technique we want, but what are some things that you've noticed being a young person, involved in school, being involved coaching at the high school level? What are maybe some good things about high school track? What are maybe some negatives that you see in in track?
1: Well, so, so I think it's really important to recognize that I may not have an outstanding personal record in the pole vault, but that wasn't my goal in coming to Apex in the first place. I really wanted to come here because I wanted to learn how to coach pole vault in a way that uh, I hadn't been able to previously at my high school track team, which is where I was coaching. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I feel like I've made like leaps and bounds toward becoming a better pole vault coach in this building with sure, you yeah, yeah. and all the other coaches here and the athletes which I've learned um, a lot from as well um, but to look at sort of my uh, expertise in the vault as an athlete I don't think is a fair comparison to where I've come where I started and where I've where I've gone as a pole vault coach mm-hmm. which I feel like really proud of today so um, that's kind of like why I sit in front of you right now and right. so my, my take on on high school track and field, and, like, I, I hate to be maybe sounding kind of negative here for the start, is, like, it it all just seems so backwards. Like, well, everything just seems like the priorities and the... the interests of the coach versus the athlete don't match up in ways that are, are like, communicative. Like, I just don't see the collaboration that's necessary for successful athletes to reach their performance goals in um, high school track and field environments. And I'm not just talking about my own school. Uh, I think there's lots of schools out there where there's, like, not necessarily the right type of communication between well, athlete and coach.
0: Well, right. And so let me let me bring up an, an example. You know, um, I remember on Facebook, it was maybe two months ago now, I saw someone post an article about a kid who was jumping at his high school and it was raining and the coach was like, all right, you got to jump. The kid said, you know, I don't feel comfortable. And the coach was like, well, if you don't jump, you're going to get kicked off the team. And the kid was like, well, I'm not jumping. So the coach was like, all right, you're off the team. And the dad ended up suing. Now, what I thought was really interesting in the comments section about this article, everybody's arguing whether or not it's safe to jump in the rain. And what I kind of said at that point, I commented, I was like, look, I think everyone's missing the point. I've seen people jump in the rain. I've seen people opt to not jump in the rain. I mean, obviously, there's a spectrum of rain that we can talk about. But I said the, the point that everyone is missing is... That the service a coach provides is helping guide someone in acquiring skill in in a certain sport. Right, and it's not
1: their job to step in and say, or like hold ultimatums over the athletes
0: right right oh, no, it's I'm like yeah you, you you're just supposed to be there to help the kid if right. the kid doesn't want to jump in that situation you can't make anyone do anything and i and i said that's that's the biggest problem that i see with coaches today and this is probably something that we can talk about across the board and yeah, actually tracking yeah things. and actually this friday we we have an awesome awesome guest um we actually have an nfl football coach that's gonna be on the podcast it's gonna be awesome super excited about it <laughs> who is that um well carmen's dad's gonna be on mr Sullivan Um, he's he's a quarterback's coach in the NFL he's actually with the Denver Broncos now so I mean that's the right team my name is Bronco Denver Broncos (laughs) it just fits Uh, but um, yeah like we're going to discuss things across the board but it's like look your job as a coach you can't really make anyone do anything you're helping guide them and the other thing that I kind of put out there as an idea the only thing you can really do is create an environment where hard work is rewarded And then that can change people's lives because, you know, and again, let's, you know, again, talk about track in in general, you know, um, you know, obviously I think there's, there are good coaches out there. There's good track teams out there. There's good track environments out there, but things that I see happening all too often are coaches that are forcing kids to do things. Instead of being there and allowing them to learn the sport, love the sport, and then see that work ethic thrive. In fact, I often feel like what's rewarded on a track team is not hard work. It's points scored or results. And so everybody's like, hey, look at Johnny. See, he jumps high or he runs fast. And that's rewarded. Meanwhile, maybe Johnny is the laziest kid on the team. And then you walk up to the kid who's not scoring points and be like, see, Tommy, why can't you be like Johnny? Tommy, you're, you're you're not working hard enough. And in fact, Tommy's really outworking Johnny. He's just not naturally talented.
1: And that creates a work ethic that I don't think you want to have on any sports right. team, not just a track team, but I think it's easier to see with individualized sports like track and field and swimming in particular at a high school level. Um, but you're absolutely right. I think that... Too often we see athletes who have this goal in mind, and the coach is thinking from the beginning of the season, who's going to score me the most points at my championship, and who's going to get my team the most recognition. Let's focus on the athletes who are already putting out the performances that are going to get me there, and let's just follow them. Like I, I, yeah, I can appreciate that that Timmy and Tommy and little and little Lucy, like you know short little girl who just came out her freshman year are showing up and like want to learn the sport. And that's great. But you guys can just like go for a run. I'm going to work with like big Dan, who's already got a PR from last year. And we right. know he can do it again. But we're not thinking about where are these athletes
0: going to be in two years
1: from now? Or like, what's Dan going to be like if he keeps eating the crap he's eating? Right? And he's not improving. Right. Well,
0: well, right. So it's like, look, if you keep rewarding results instead of work ethic, the thing is even that successful athlete, how much progress is he going to make? And I think that's, that's a really important idea for me as a coach is like progress is so, so important. Can we continue to make progress? Yes, of course. Right. No matter what level you're at, sure. Does progress slow down? right? Like when a kid first starts pole vaulting, sure, that zero to nine feet, that first nine feet of progress comes real fast. fast. The next nine feet, probably not as fast, but the thing is you can continually make progress, but instead of the focus being progress, it's kind of like, like you said, we're just trying to put the, the chess pieces in the right spot. So we win our league title. And I understand that. But isn't the best way to a league title or a county title or a state title to develop athletes in various events, promote progress and hard work, and then you will have the depth to win those titles?
1: I agree with you. And I also think that uh, teams that are athlete-centered, where the coach actually does have that communication with the athlete and says, like, hey, what are your goals for the season? How can I help you get there? Right. And how can we all work together to make that happen? You may not be playing that chess game the way you used to and looking for just the points from the beginning of the season to the end of the season, but I would argue that the culture you develop on a team like that is going to lead to championships in the end anyway, and you don't even have to think about it because kids keep coming back. They come back to to practice fired up and ready to go for the next one because they know that your interest
0: aligns with theirs. Right. So, you know, and, and here's the thing, right? I, I think, um, you know, and I'm going to bring this idea in and tie it into what you're saying is I think a lot of times too in track, what, what we tend to do is like, well, I don't think you're going to score any points in the 200. So we're going to bump you up to the 400 or the 800, regardless of whether that kid wants to do that or not. And the thing is, now you're putting a kid in a position to do something they don't want to do. Work ethic is going to go down, right? Whereas if you keep developing talent, these kids will make those kind of choices on their own. Like if they see that they're not fast enough to be in the top five in the 200 group, they'll bump up to the 400 willingly because that's where they'll want to go. That's where they see they can can continue to make progress, right? And so it's like by having this environment where everyone – is trying to make progress and training groups are formed and now they push each other and there's competitiveness on your team. Well, now the biggest competition comes not from a track meet, but actual track practice. And those kids are fighting for spots, which is just going to breed this very competitive environment, which, I mean, I see it at my club. I don't make anyone at Apex do anything. Like, it's funny, like, um, a dad and his daughter came in to check the club out today and you know they—they they were asking me a bunch of questions, and they were asking me about the weight training. And I showed them a video of Sydney Shannon, who she's five foot one, 115 pounds, and she single leg squatted um, 235 pounds. Wow. Really and fantastic. right, but the thing is, like, I don't make Sydney do that. All I did was when she first came in, and she started here, I think, the summer after her seventh grade. She did circuits like everyone else. We taught her basic movements, like how to do a push-up properly, pull-ups, squats, deadlifts, and she just over time in the group because everybody pushes she, it pushes each other. She worked up to that. You have a you
1: developmental know? system, right? right? The fact that she came here, sit and Sydney's a great athlete. Um, the fact that she came here in seventh grade and did circuits also speaks to your uh, system that you right. created, right? And I think a lot of coaches who are not familiar with weight training, first of all, if your coach is not familiar with weight training, I don't know what you're doing in the first place, Um, but coaches who are not familiar with weight training, and especially parents who are not familiar with weight training, see it happening on a team and they go, oh, wait, 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 wait. My child's not doing that. My child, my precious child, is not going to put a big barbell on their back and squat it into oblivion and stand up afterward with their vertebrae in place. And like, that's not where you
0: start, though. Well, sure. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, when Sydney first started working out in here, she was not using a barbell. You know, she wasn't doing anything that was like crazy weights like that. I mean, even uh, tonight, we had a girl that's going into eighth grade that. When she first came in here, I mean, literally, we had the bar and rubber 10-pound plates on. So she was deadlifting 65 pounds, right? Just learning how to deadlift. She has deadlifted 175 pounds now, and she weighs probably 105.
1: But she does it safely. With right, form correct. Because she practices
0: well, that, well that. but that's the thing. So it's like you can't – You just like – What I'm saying is, like, you can't just bump a 200 guy up to the 400 or just bump a 200 guy up to the 800 because he or she is too slow. You can't just throw weights at kids. And I I think the problem is, like, you know, people are taking athletes who are kind of, like, naturally already talented in certain areas and just throwing them at things. Like, I mean – I'm sorry, but how many times have you heard stories about a kid high jumping and they never had a high jump practice? And their first meet, like a boy will jump 6'2", 6'4", a girl will jump 5'4", or something like that. And it's like everybody's like super impressed and proud, but it's like, one, nobody – Is that
1: repeatable?
0: Well, not even – forget about repeatable. What are we so happy about? Yes, we have a good, talented athlete. What will you do going forward? You know, how, how do we get that exactly. to continue with the progress, you know? If you don't
1: have that system in place, the expectation that they're going to continue doing that after that, like, freak awesome performance is pretty slim because you haven't been training it in the first yeah. place. And yeah. imagine what's going through that athlete's head. Okay, you're a boy that clears 6'2 in the high jump. Hey, that was really fun. I want to keep doing this. Or, wow, I got through it. I've never done this before. I wonder what my coach is thinking about how we do this. How come I've never done it before in the first place? Well,
0: right, and and here's the thing too: if you're not really teaching the kids, like I can't tell you how many high school kids that I run into that they don't even know their PRs.
1: That's ridiculous.
0: You That's know, not possible. but I yeah okay. To me and you, it's impossible. But like, think about it, like. More often than not, the kid will know whether they won the dual meet or they won this meet or they won that meet, but they might not even know the times because when you're not going through proper training, they don't even know the value of those results. You know, all they know is like, I scored points for my team. They can't even, like, have an idea of, like, is that good? Like, think about it. For uh, me and you, we recognize the fact that an uncoached boy who high jumps six two six four shows great potential, but does that kid even realize how good that is? All he knows is he won the dual meet, and everybody was happy.
1: I think that's my biggest problem with coaching in general right now, is that too often I see coaches not educating their athletes, right? In addition right. to teaching technique, teaching fitness, right? building skills over time we're not teaching a context we're not giving athletes standards or saying like hey that was a great day today you ran uh the 459 for the first time if you're like a stud girl
0: on the team
1: but how does that stack up like how do you match up on a national scale how do you match up on a state scale like where are the best girls right now and do your measures of performance in practice, like in the weight room um, or in do they like,
0: match up? Yeah. jumps,
1: like do those match up? Because if you're a girl that can run 59 in the 400, you've got some speed, right? You should be able to do, um, I don't know, what would be a good deadlift for someone who can run the 400 in 59 seconds? If you're a girl?
0: I mean, I, I would imagine that if you're a 59 girl, you know, and let's say size-wise, like let's say the girl is like 5'8", 100 40 pounds, 130 pounds, I mean, even untrained, like, the first day, I feel like 135, 155 pounds should be rather easy for that, yeah, that like, athlete. Yeah, I was going to push the numbers. Yeah, I was say like but, I mean, years. look, I think, you know, this year, and again, like, I just feel like, you know, the numbers, like, the longer I do this, the the more I expect. Because um, I was actually at a wedding this past weekend, Lauren Riley, she was one of my first athletes. She jumped 12, nine and a half. She was five foot three at the time. You know, it's like that was a really big jump. And, you know, she weighed 130 pounds and she single leg squatted 185. We thought that was phenomenal. Yeah. And then this year, like I said, Sydney Shannon, who weighs 115, 120 pounds, she did, uh, single leg squatted 235.
1: Now she's jumping what on the
0: 11. 11. She jumps 11. 11. That's her PR. And so, ne- and then, um, you know, and, and again, I, I think, you know, there you might be like, well, Lauren jumped higher, but Lauren was a little bit taller. Lauren was also naturally faster than Sydney. She was way more explosive. Um, so it's like, you know, it's not all even, but that, I think that means that Lauren could have pushed the numbers even more. That's I mean, true. I have a girl right now that's five foot, two, 115 pounds, Amanda Katz. She's deadlifted three Oh five. I think she could do more. Um, Plus, like, I mean, even just off of other things that I've heard, I know uh, Ryan Flaherty, he's a a strength and conditioning coach in the Boston area. He has Olympic sprinter females who are trap bar deadlifting over 500 pounds and they weigh 150. So it's like, if you have a 59 girl, you have to know that, okay, you know, there's certain strength numbers that we have to hit. I mean, if, if that, if that girl is refusing to deadlift one, you haven't introduced it in the right way. And two, you're not keeping it safe enough and progressive enough where she can build up because clearly that's going to have an impact. I mean, her power to weight ratio is so important. I mean, people forget how important power to weight ratio is for all the track of events. I mean, sure, on the throws, you don't have to be too concerned with it. I mean, like with shot put, look you've got to be able to move that weight. But even there, it's like at a, there's a, a certain point of no return. Well, if you look
1: at Randy Barnes, when he threw the shot put for the world record, mm-hmm. he's a pretty fit looking guy. Like, right. His power to weight ratio, I would say was really impressive back then. Yeah. And even the best shot putters today, um, like, like Valerie Adams from New Zealand, mm-hmm. um, who constantly had, um, big throws over the last decade. uh, you know her power to weight ratio is probably higher than the other throwers that she's with and that makes yeah. a lot of sense so like power to weight ratio is important and we could talk about the numbers all we want for someone who runs the 459 seconds right. As but, a girl right
0: but but i mean here's the thing at the, at the end of the day you know and the, the, i guess this is the point we're trying to to make is like if you create a culture where hard work is rewarded Everyone is going to work harder. All the numbers go up and everyone pushes each other. Now, it's not even to say that maybe you may have a case like tomorrow I'm actually going to do a short podcast with Lily Brown because we're going to we're going to talk about the idea of like, look, if you have a weakness, if you don't work on it, it will lead to injury like she has a predisposition to back pain. She got MRIs done on, on, on her back and her vertebrae, you have ligaments around your vertebrae, they're all loose on her from years of gymnastics. So she's predisposed to having a weaker back and having back pain. If we didn't do all the things that we did to strengthen her back, not only would have her, you know, back hurt, she probably wouldn't have been able to continue pole vaulting. So, yeah, Lily doesn't really deadlift, you know, but we find other things for her to do to strengthen her back. So you obviously have to individualize things. But the thing is, when you reward hard work and when you allow the kids to do the things that they want to do, like I don't have to make anyone deadlift because the thing is, long term, if someone's at my club, they see Sydney or Amanda or Owen or, you know, whoever working out. And they go, wow, that kid jumps high, they're moving a lot of weight, they're throwing up during circuit training. I guess if I want to jump that high, I have to do that. But
1: what they're not seeing is the fact that those athletes have been here for a while and they've been working hard. Sure. And so it's important to ask the question. It's like, hey, Bronco, why is Owen really good at jumping? Why is Amanda really good at jumping? Why does, why does Blythe keep coming back to this club? And the answer is that, one, they're having a good experience, two, they're improving, three, they trust you, and they've been doing it for a while to know yeah. that the system works. And if you ask one of them, they're going to say, like, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm a very good jumper now, but I worked really hard to get to this point, and you can too.
0: Right, and, I, and look, I think that's critical, right? Like, if you want anything really in life to work, you have to work hard and it's that consistent effort. And I think when you're rewarding hard work in a sport, people will continue to make progress beyond their natural limits. And so now, like you said, when someone new asks a veteran athlete, Hey, like, how are you jumping so high? Be patient, kid. It's about long-term progress. Just keep at it. Just keep at it. Like you have no idea. My first practice When I did baby hurdles for running form, I knocked all of them down. That sounds like someone
1: that you want to stick with because that someone who can recognize their failures and the way they work through their failures is going to be someone who understands that it's a slow progression and that you can learn from someone who has the necessary patience to work with you. And so I told a lot of my, um, weight throwers, which is actually a group of people I was really proud of working with this past winter. Um, that you need to be patient, right? Like the skills that I'm teaching you right now in December are not going to be paying off later this month. You're going to see some improvement in that particular skill set,
0: right, right, right. But
1: there's a there's a whole other combination of skills that we haven't done yet. And once we start working that whole package together, you're going to see PR performance, and you're going to see your performance performances. It says it really didn't expect championship, which was kind of the plan from right. the beginning. And right. so like, for example, I coached this kid, um, Asa Ferguson, who I'm super proud of, um, from, a, a personal best performance of 17 feet. I think he had never thrown the weight before this year came to me and said, Hey, I want to do this. And I was somehow given the space to work with him yeah. very, very closely. And he popped off a few like twenty foot throws in December. He was definitely executing skills.
0: So he's already pring, yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But like, I knew deep down that he was capable of way more. It's just that the package wasn't coming together because right. he was only doing each skill in the week that we were working. Right, on. right, right. And I only progressed him when he got to like eighty five percent. Right,
0: right, right. Um, success uh, rate. Success yeah. rate. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And so. January February rolls around. He's got he's got twenty two feet under his belt, and he's not satisfied. I'm not satisfied, but he keeps coming back for more because right. he's seeing improvement, right? And I think I said to him at once uh, in practice, I was like, "Asar." You can throw this thing 30 feet. I know that deep down because I see what you're doing with your footwork. Right, and you
0: can see where when he connects a couple dots, things are going to come together. Exactly.
1: Like, he's throwing 24 feet in practice. He's throwing 28 feet with the girl's weight in practice. And so he didn't get to where he wanted to be a championship. I don't know what the the environment or the factors were, but he had a teammate that was pushing him, another great athlete I worked with um, named uh, Brendan Rivera, who also had some awesome PRs this year. But I think Asa's season was really special because he got to his Frosh Soft Championship, and his opening throw, he got one warm-up, Where he threw 26 feet, Mm -hmm. looked at me and said, I can do this. And then the next time he got in the ring, he threw 29 feet. Awesome. Eight inches or something like that. And that's a...
0: Huge improvement. That's a more than
1: 10-foot PR on his season overall. And for that moment, it was like a 6-foot PR. He stood up, didn't even believe that he threw that. Yeah, Yeah, He looked at me and was like, ah, this is amazing, right? Turns to all of the people standing around him and goes, it's on. You know, and I'd never seen him fired up like that. And suddenly, the atmosphere of the weight throwers around him, standing around the cage in the armory, well, let me just say, they were scared. Because the atmosphere became electric, and that carried him through the rest of the competition. And those moments are, are the moments that I think we as coaches look to to keep kids coming back cuz they see the success. Well, and Asa also ran the 400 I think and the 800 which I like I don't understand.
0: Right. Um, yeah, you typically don't see throwers I mean, running. But.
1: Right. but we needed points. So yeah. that's where, you know, he was needed, that's where he went. But I think when he looks back on this year, he only remembers weight.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and look, I think the thing is like by, you know, having kids, because you said it's like, oh, be patient, you know, you're not going to get PRs in the beginning. But like you said, he was already PR in literally the first month you worked with him, but then he got a way bigger PR by the end of the season. So it's like, one, you're trying to get people to have improvement from from the start, but you want that long term vision of getting a really big payoff at the end. And so it's like, when you get that to happen, now that's it, right? Like, you, you look at someone like your thrower, He's he loves the weight throw. He wants to do that always. And then, like, I, I think you bring up a good point. It's like, and then he's got to go do stuff he doesn't want to do. It's we. I, I, I'm sorry. It's just, to me, it's like, it's really, really weird. And don't get me wrong. I think, you know, if you're in a championship me and – You know, the team looks like it's in position to win. And, you know, I think those kids, if they train together, they're going to want to do it for each other anyway. Um, But like when you force kids to have to do things they don't want to do, like, I feel like I see that in the pole vault all the time. It's like, here's a kid that you probably ignored for the first two, three years of his high school career. You threw him to the pole vault because couldn't score you points anywhere else. And now the kid loves the sport and maybe by senior year becomes a really, really good athlete. And now they got to do events that they don't want to do, and that that's like, that's really weird to me. It's like you haven't even developed that rapport or relationship with the kid. I mean, you know, in your opinion, how many kids do you think are kind of left on the wayside on teams? You know what I mean? It's like I feel like there's a lot of kids that are ignored. You know?
1: Yeah, I mean, we had an injured and reserved crew that would do a variety of activities when they clearly could not be on the track. And now I could give my opinion about why they'd not be on the track, but that's a whole other story. Yeah. Um, As the throws coach on my team uh, for the last three years, I often got the kids who were not running on the track uh, because Mm -hmm. they were injured. And it was like, hey, this kid can't do this. They're still on the team. Just have them throw because it's explosive, it'll keep them strong, and it's something for them to do wait a second. Yes, it is something to do, but do they want to do it? Why are they throwing in the first place? If they can't participate, then we need to address a bigger question, which is why aren't they participating? Why do I have so many kids coming to me to throw when they can't be on the track for some reason?
0: Well, and, and here's the other thing to me too. It's like, I think that's a cop out. Like when, when coach like, Oh, have them throw. That's like a good explosive thing for them to do. look, you can go in the weight room and do something explosive Absolutely. if you want to, you know, go do some plyos, you know, do whatever. But it's like, so to me, it's just like, no training is training events are events. And I look to me, I don't care if somebody wanted to vault and I was coaching at a high school and that kid is going to be number 20 on the team in the vault, but they love the vault. I want to have that kid vault and I'm going to find them some meets to compete in. Absolutely. First of all, why does my number one kid have to do every dual meet? I think the number one kid should just focus on like bigger meets, like states and counties. Let your backup pole vaulters do the dual meets. But again, when you're not thinking about progress, when you're not thinking about development, all of a sudden the dual meets are seen as we got to win them. We got to win the dual meets. W- what does it matter? The dual meet
1: doesn't matter. It's a it's an opportunity for a high quality performance. Which, if you want to train for that moment in the season, you can use that as a diagnostic assessment of where that athlete is at. But that's it. I mean, we're not, we're not talking about, like, team championships, team titles, nothing well,
0: like that. Well, th- think about this, too. You know, I, You know, track is such a sport that I think if you were competing three days a week, you really can't train. I remember bumping into a head coach from Colorado, which, again— I think there's plenty of great coaches out there agree who run know. great programs. Absolutely. And I, I bumped into this one head coach who, who was coaching a high school in Colorado. And what he did was he had a varsity team that only went to counties, states, like all those like big meets. Then he had a JVA squad that would only do the dual meets on Mondays and a JVB squad that did only the dual meets on Wednesdays. So everyone got at least one meet a week and – you know, they were able to compete at the level that they were meant to compete. Plus they also you know? get
1: his attention in a way that right. makes sense. Like and if you're showing up with 40 people, one coach. Right.
0: And you have a full week of training for everybody. Right. Because with one meet a week, you can, you can have everyone train the rest of the week.
1: We got to talk about this guy who I came across in my coaching in, in uh, New York city and PSAL. Um, because I just find him Amazing. Uh, for the way he runs his program. And, and in some ways, I see a lot of similarities to what he does to Apex. His name is Tom Henning, and he coaches at the high school for math, science, and engineering. Mm-hmm. Now, rewind the clock three years ago. I first started coaching um, in January 2016, volunteer coach, assistant. Um, I stayed assistant for for my high school that I worked at. Mm-hmm. Um, I did say before that I'm a middle school science teacher, but my school is 7 through 12, so just to clarify. Yeah. Um, and this team... High School for Math, Science, and Engineering is barely a team. They've got maybe 10 athletes, and their coach starts building a program. It's just him. He's the physics teacher at the school. I found this out from talking Mm -hmm. to him. I respect the hell out of him. Um, Over time, his team has grown to about, I think, probably 60 or more athletes, somewhere in that ballpark, and it's still just him. He has no assistance, and yet this team is now getting second in the county championship regularly, giving the first-place team who always scores, which is Stuyvesant High School, um, a run for their money in the last year. And what I think is so spectacular about him is that he walks around with a camera, and clearly in practice he's teaching his best athletes how to coach the younger athletes. Right. So he's got a system in place where he can walk around, take photos, analyze film, analyze stills, And say things to the older athletes who are teaching the younger athletes what he thinks, but he relies on his older athletes to teach them so that he can be everywhere he needs to be and give the attention when it's deserved, when it's necessary. Yeah. And the system works.
0: Well, and, and I'm sure, you know, again, I haven't seen this guy, but it's like even in those scenarios, it's not that you just follow around the best kids. You go where you're needed. Right. You know what I mean? In those situations, like, you might be walking up to the kid who is one of the the lowest performers on the team, but you know that you can provide something there which could increase performance, whereas maybe your top kid is good, and like they're set up. Yeah,
1: and he's not following his studs because they're studs, right? He's not following his best athlete because of his need for them as an athlete of his he's following them because they're his coaches. Yeah. Right. He's like, I need to check in with my assistant coach so that I can tell them right. how to work with. Right. The well,
0: athletes. and, and again, I think this is a conversation where we need to talk about again, what is the objective? What is the goal? And if you are a coach, again, I'm going to go back to it. If you are a coach, your goal, the service that you provide is helping young kids acquire skill in your sport. It is not to score points. It is not to win meets. Those are byproducts. You know, and I talk about that a lot in the club as far as pole vaulting is concerned. I think a lot of people talk about byproducts, right? Like someone would be like, oh, you got to really bend the pole. You got to bend the pole. The bending of the pole is a byproduct of your speed on the runway, okay? Let's not get twisted on this, okay? Okay. Well, same thing. If you do your job or goal as a coach, teaching kids skills, developing the different event groups, then the byproduct is you score points, you win meets. Right. You know, I think again, and, and and we're I'm sure we're gonna bring up this name, but like, you know, Bill Belichick, for example, of the New England Patriots in in, in the NFL, what he does so well. You know, and I remember seeing the quote when we were out touring Ohio State, they had a Bill Belichick quote on on the team meeting room in Ohio State for their football team, and it said, "How do you know your team is ready? You know your team is ready when they know what they're doing and why they're doing it." So, again, that's Bill Belichick's quote. So for him, his New England Patriot football team, he knows they're ready when everybody knows what they're doing and why they're doing it. He is teaching all of them the skills of the game, the offense and defense of the game, the system, and they are all learning this system. And if they know this system, then they will score points. Then they will win games, and then they will win championships, which they have done.
1: So a little self-promotion plug here because it relates to um, what you just talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm publishing an article on simplyfaster.com. It's coming out in the next week or so, hopefully. Yeah. Um, but it's about principles, fundamental principles of coaching high school track and yeah. field. And one of my principles is a direct quote from you, Bronco. It's um,
0: Well, thank you. <laughs>
1: you're welcome. I-, I hope they give you the right credit on the uh, on the article. Um, the-, the quote is, if your coach can't explain why and how to do the drill or why you're doing it in the first place, don't do that drill. Yeah. And that makes so much sense, right? If you can't explain well, and it to Just
0: your quick athlete, side note, sorry. just so you know that's not an original thought. Um, I think everybody gets their thoughts from some somewhere. Right. When I went down to Tennessee to work with Roman Bacharnikov, his big thing was, like, why? Everything needs a purpose, you know? And that's what he preached, and I don't know who told him that or whatever. But, yeah, like, go ahead. So it's, like, you have to have a purpose behind what you're doing. So I've
1: done that in track and field when I've coached athletes. I've made sure that every time we do a drill, I explain, especially to the athletes who've never done it before, Mm -hmm. why we're doing it and how it fits into the progression and the skills that they're developing. Yeah for the performances later on. I said that I'm a coach of track and field. I'm also the head coach of the varsity soccer team at my high school. Mm. And um, so a little love and shout-out to them. Um, And we're about to go into preseason in August. And every year that I've coached high school soccer, which is two years now, every time we've done a drill where my kids were like, hey, why are we doing this, or I've never done this before, I explain it. And I say, this is how it fits into our game and the style of play that I want to see on the field when we have a match. right? And I think a lot of them have appreciated that because they e- are either not getting it from their coaches who have coached those similar drills for them in the past, and I'm talking about their club coaches, or maybe they just has ne- they've just never heard a drill explained to right. that well, extent in the first place. Well,
0: and you know what's funny is, like, I think sometimes some of the kids that I coach, when they go on to college and, and you know, they work with someone else, some people might find my athletes difficult because they expect that explanation. They expect to find out how this fits into the big puzzle but of the good. season. And if you're a coach and you get agitated by that, you need to think about your system a little bit. Or do you even have a system? Great question. You know, and so so these are things like if you expect – like, and, and I really feel strongly about this, guys – just because you're a coach, right? And, and that's an authority figure, right? Like a coach is an authority figure. A teacher is an authority figure. A boss is an authority figure. A cop is an authority figure. Just because you are an authority figure does not make you an authority. Meaning that like you still have to earn that respect. You know, and we, and we see our climate today. It's not just a given. Just because you wear a certain uniform and just because you have a certain title doesn't mean that you're right. You know, I mean, look at even medicine, just because you're a doctor doesn't mean your patient's going to believe you. Don't, don't expect your patient just to take your word for it. You better be able to explain yourself, you know, and, and I get that that's difficult sometimes. Like maybe the way I think about the pole vault is a little bit too advanced and I gotta, I gotta explain it in simple terms and You know, you probably know the quote. It's, I think it's from a scientist, but it's like, you know, it's like if you can't explain something to the simple man, then you're a charlatan, right? Do you know who the quote is from? I don't. Oh my God. But you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I I, I feel like one of us should Google it, but anyway, but like, you know, that's the thing. So it's like, if you can't explain yourself or you can't explain the purpose of something that you're doing, then you should probably as a coach start thinking about like, why are we doing this? Like, what is the point? And if your only answer is like, well, this is what I did, that's not good enough. No. That's just not good enough. I wouldn't take that. You wouldn't take that. And so why are now you forcing your kids to listen to you just because, well, this is how I did it? That's, that's not a good enough explanation. Absolutely.
1: Um, and, and what you're talking about is education, honestly. Not just coaches' education, right. but athletes' education yeah. from their coaches. Um, my supervisor at school said something to me that I think has resonated with me for a very long time. Um, and has made me a better science teacher. And that is too often teachers do things in the classroom because teachers, their own teachers, did that with them when they were students. And that's not, like you were just saying, that's not a good enough reason to justify whatever the activity, the task, or the drill is. And so a good example of that in track and field is sprinting. There's a lot out there on sprinting. And I think really the best programs, the best systems to exist in keep things simple. So I was doing a lot of research over the past year and a half to improve my knowledge of sprinting because it fits into every sport. Right, Practically every sport requires you to right. run. Maybe not swimming. But the, the ability to run is something that... Is not as well coached as it could
0: be, right? I mean, I, I saw, I saw, I listened to a podcast with uh, Ryan Flaherty, who's a, a strength and conditioning guy. I mentioned him earlier. He has the sp- Olympic sprinter he's females. Nike, right? he's I Nike don't, I don't know. I don't want to, you yeah, know, no make a mistake. But he's the one that had, you know, the the Olympic sprinters uh, females who weigh 150 pounds, deadlifting trap bar, deadlifting 500 pounds. He talked about it is like look like every sport except except for swimming sports right and then he goes look if you're gonna teach water polo what's the first thing you would teach how, how to swim. swim yeah every sport involves running and it's like no one teaches running like you have you have to teach it it is not inherently known you I know it's not soccer, natural if
1: you want to get to the ball faster than someone else you got to know how to run right, right. you also got to know how to stop right but those are things that are not as well coached in our sport so back to track and field. Um, I was training my throwers to be good throwers, but you know, you need to sprint. You need to be able to use all of your limbs and be coordinated. Um, so I also taught my throwers how to sprint at the beginning of the season. I kept saying to them, our focus is acceleration. I want to see how fast you can go from zero to 60 miles per hour. Right. It'd be amazing if they could
0: do that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was about to say, wow, you got some fast players. Zero
1: to 60, right? How do you get from zero to 60? That's acceleration. And then how do you maintain that? That's top speed. How do you stay at 60 miles per hour for a a long duration of time? And one of my athletes came up to me and said, how come you keep talking about acceleration? Well, we're in the beginning of the season, right? The progression in sprinting is you learn how to accelerate, you learn how to maintain that top speed or how to push your top speed higher, and then you learn how to hold on to that top speed. I guess this is really the maintenance phase of speed endurance for a longer period of time, right? So most athletes in track and field, because a lot of track and field is very explosive, is really all just acceleration. Like shot put is the shortest sprint in track and field. I'm sorry to the to the 60-meter dashes out mm-hmm. there and, and the 100-meter runners, but shot put, most explosive event in track and field, yeah. right? And so they do a lot of acceleration work. There's not really a lot of need for top speed or speed endurance in their program. A 400 meter runner, on the other hand,
0: They're very they different. Do,
1: exactly, they may do, um, you know, three to four weeks of acceleration during, let's say, the outdoor season of a high school track and field program. They'll move into top speed for three weeks, and then the last four to five weeks will all be speed endurance yeah. and a lot of recovery because you need it. But they are 400 meter runners; they need that speed well, endurance, well, and well, that's right. something that I think falls into coaches educating athletes that we don't see a lot of like, I want to teach my athletes how to do drills and how to be technical. Well, and,
0: and so that the kids know why they're doing what exactly, they're doing, you know, exactly. going back to that bill Belichick, quote, it. you know what I mean? Because if the kids know why they're doing what they're doing, they're more likely to want to do it. By like end. if, if yeah, I am exactly. a 400 meter runner, I want to PR. If I know how and why this workout is going to help me, I'm going to be more likely to do it. Like I just mentioned earlier, there's kids in my club That throw up during circuits because circuits, that's our GPP phase, right? Our general preparation phase. They're trying to get their bodies ready for the hard work they're going to do for the rest of the season. They are pushing each other so hard, you know, because they know that when they hit the the lifting, this is going to help. This is going to help them push past plateaus. And that's a very volume-heavy part of the season because this is GPP, as you said. Yeah, right. But it's like I'm not making anybody throw up. Like they're, those kids are just—they're they're just pushing themselves because they know the value, right? And, and so that's the thing. It's like why make a kid do the four hundred? It's a lot easier to coach someone who wants to do the four hundred. Because I've—I've had you know at, at Ramapo College for a couple of years. I was—I was working with other event groups, and I've had four hundred meter runners that man, I'll tell you what—they—they they wanted those grueling workouts. They are more than happy. Right to do, you know, something like repeat threes Those or, you know, it's like, because they've bought into the process. I never had to beg them to do another set, you know, they wanted it, you know? And, and I guess, so, you know, the thing that I get, I'm trying to get across in this podcast, and the reason I wanted to have you on, cause we, we've had several conversations about how, you know, instead of trying to force kids to do things, why not have them help them do the things they want to do? And then you'll be amazed by the work ethic you'll see. You know, and and here's the other thing. I'm sorry, but you know, I had a podcast with Brad Hoey talking about this, about you know, growing the sport of pole vault, be inclusive, not exclusive, right? You want track to grow? All these track coaches talk about growing the sport, and yet you keep making kids do things they don't want to do.
1: How is that going kind to of
0: grow the sport? Well, and then. When you have that poor guy or girl who, you know, they're running on the track and they run a little slow time. You look down upon them. You shake your head. You know, you scorn them. You yell at them for slow times. Is that a kid who's going to want to come back to the track? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No. They'll go do, you know what? They'll go join the new lacrosse team that just started where the coach is happy to work with everyone. You're, you're hitting close. That's, <laughs> that's what's going to happen. You know? So it's like, no, you want to grow the sport. You want more kids out on the team. You want more studs on your team. Then you need to entice people to do this. right? And I
1: think the best people to bring people to bring new athletes to your team are the athletes themselves, mm-hmm. right? You can create yourself. You can create your own image within the, let's say it's a school or the community, like here at Apex, right. we're not a school, yeah. but we have a lot of reach. People who walk away with a positive experience and say, yeah, this person really helped me get to where I am now. Yeah, They're going to be the ones to reach out to their friends and say, hey, I had a great experience. Yay. You should try this too. Right, And you might do something different than me because your interest in track and field or your interest in supporting your other sport that you do. Right. Make an event in particular different or an event that works for you different than mine, but this guy can teach you something or this woman can teach right. you something and you should come out and give it a try. Right. And and those athletes that recruit other athletes are the athletes who grow the sport for us yeah. coaches. Well
0: well look and, and I'll use Apex as an example. I can't tell you how many kids come to this club where, you know, they're not maybe they're maybe not gonna jump in college or they're maybe not going to win the state title, but They love the sense of community here and they love being a part of it. You know, one, they feel like they're continuing to make progress regardless of what their PR is, you know, because they get how the skills and drills and exercises and workouts are all working together to move that PR. They see all those little baby steps, those baby goals, you know, and they're putting it all together and they love the sense of community and they love the positive uh, uh, vibes, you know. Well, if you're not creating that on your track team at your high school, the kids will stop coming out.
1: Absolutely. The yeah, kids will stop coming there's out. It's not going to be interesting if, if it's not positive, there's no improvement being shown. And if you're, if you're not making sure that they walk away happy and healthy, honestly, I don't know what you're doing. Yeah. Cause that's really what track and field should be because of the place that we've gotten to as a larger global community at this point. Um, this is the, To me, this is the coolest sport out there. There's nothing better than track and field in terms of a sport because it's so raw, because it's really a measure of your true athleticism, and there's nothing that can like get in the way of the numbers. The numbers say everything. Right? Yeah. And so for this sport to exist where it's at right now is kind of saddening to me because I think people don't place enough value on the the core needs of other sports existing within track and field, right? We should be the sport that sends people to other sports and say, like, hey, track and field really did this well for me. I'm going to try this new sport. If it doesn't work out, I'm coming back track and field because track and field is something I was already successful in. I had a great positive experience. Or... Track and field is the sport that continues to be done for the rest of someone's life, right? Like right. we have so many people out in in cities across this country and the world that are running five K's and 10Ks and family fun runs, and that's great, but that's not that's not track and field, that's cross country. Right. Don't kid yourself, right? Right. That's cross country. Right. Right? The fastest man is an exciting thing. Yeah. The fastest woman, that's an exciting event, right? and as much global reach as that has there are other great events in this sport that just don't get that reach which i think deserve that reach like pole vault yeah. is really the most demanding sport in track and field i think is what people call it
0: yeah triple jump is maybe
1: the most technical although you could argue other ways yeah the 400 is probably the hardest event in yeah. track and field there's all these sport there's all these events out there that deserve so much more elevation than they're receiving currently
0: well i look i think you know, and, and I don't want to go too deep into this rabbit hole because we can go another hour, but um, I think kind of goes back to what we're discussing at the high school level. When you do have coaches out there who don't explain the events, teach the events, they don't tell kids the how and why of what they're doing, there's lack of knowledge. You know, it's like I always feel like when I watch attract me, I really see a bigger story. As I watch the events and I see where someone may have made a mistake and where someone capitalized on a mistake and, you know, I think what makes watching some other professional sports so interesting is like you could play armchair quarterback, you know, like, oh man, LeBron should have done this, you know, or Tom Brady should have done that. And, you
1: know,
0: in track and field, field, we don't have that conversation because literally the only thing that's discussed after a race or an event is like, all right, well, Sally won. Sally, how'd you feel after you won? That's boring. You know what I mean? But no one's talking
1: about the fact that teams win championships by, like, centimeters, by hundredths of a second.
0: Well, sure, but but the story behind that is even bigger. But, look, again, uh, you know, let's kind of wrap this up because it is getting late. Um, And this has been a great podcast. But I, I think the thing that, you know, I'm hearing from you and I think the thing that we're just both trying to convey is... Look, if you're coaching at the high school level, you provide a service for your athletes. You are trying to help them acquire skill, you know, and your goal has to be helping those kids, not scoring points, not winning meets, you know, because if if that's your only goal, that's really selfish, as a coach, and if you're a coach, you're not supposed to be selfish. You're supposed to be doing things for those athletes and help grooming them. Right. You know?
1: I always looked at my coaching at, at my high school as a privilege. Like right. When the day is over at 3 o'clock and I walk downstairs to gather my little throwers and pole vaulters crew, which was a small one but yeah. a good one, a very good one, it was a privilege for me to work with them. Right. And I never took that for granted because I was helping them reach their goals. They were not helping me reach mine.
0: Well, I mean, and, and here's an idea to think about too. You know, I I can't tell you how it upsets me when I see coaches are ah like, oh, man, this kid wants to ask another question. Someone on this planet values your opinion. What What is better than that? You know what I mean? Like for me, it's like, I I wish I could answer more questions, you know? And look, our social media presence right now at Apex isn't anything crazy. We have 1,400 followers on Instagram. It's nothing insane. But it's like I get DMs every couple days from people all over the country. I'm always – I'm trying to get back to everybody as quickly as possible because I want to answer people's questions, you know? I want to help as many people as possible. If you are sick of the kid on your team who keeps asking you questions – that's a problem. Maybe you shouldn't be coaching. You have to really think about what your goals are as a coach and try to provide as much as possible to your athletes. If you really care about this sport, if you really value the sport, and if you value your position.
1: I would also add that if you don't know the answer to a question,
0: that's okay too. It's okay,
1: and it's all right to say like, "Hey, I don't know." I'm going to look into this for you and get back to you yeah. so that we can arrive at some understanding right. together. Cause I think the kid will appreciate that just yeah. as much as you being able to answer their question in the first
0: place. Absolutely. And I've said that a
1: lot. Yeah. I feel like in my coaching kids have come to me and be like, Hey, why do we do this? I'm like, "Uh, I don't know. Yeah, but I do know someone who does. Yeah, let me go talk to them. And most of the time, it ended up being you, Bronco. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, but but you know what? But that's that's part of growing as as uh, uh, as anything, right? Like I don't care if you're a coach or whatever. You have to always be looking out more knowledge, trying to find mentors. Sometimes you know you're lucky enough to have a mentor that you can meet. Like I was very lucky to work with Mike Lorick. Very lucky to work with Roman Bucharanikov. But hey, guys. I think we all have a smartphone, uh, Google, you know what I mean? Like you can have mentors that you've never met. Yeah,
1: I've You can have up...
0: mentors that aren't even alive anymore. Right? Like I can read, uh, you know, Henry David Thoreau's civil disobedience and he can, I could see him as a mentor. Man's not even alive anymore. I think but it's funny you that have you have to search that. that out. You know,
1: I've built up a resource folder of articles that I've continuously come back to yeah. over the course of this last year and a half, as I've searched for more answers right. in track and field coaching. And there's a few names that stick out to me in particular. When I was talking about acceleration, uh, top speed, and speed endurance, um, John Brumman Smith is a Mm -hmm. guy. He's a coach out in – actually, I don't want to say because I feel like I'm going to get it wrong. Oh, okay. um, He's a guy who – he's like a USATF level two coach. He coaches high school. He's done some amazing things with his athletes, and he wrote this article about acceleration – coordination and variation and it just like blew open my world. Right. Another great And name. you've
0: never met that I've guy. I've never
1: met him. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But like I'm doing this uh I'm doing my next level up in USATF coaches education in July and one of my other mentors who's a cyber mentor I guess you could yeah. say because I've never met him but I read a ton of his articles is Tony Holler who's a coach at North Plainfield High School. Um, in like one of the Chicago suburbs, Yeah, yeah. I would love to meet this guy. My, yeah. my level two training is in Indiana and it's not a far drive. Now I didn't send an email I could have, but
0: you know, these are people who you can look to and they're online. They're writing things. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And look, I would also tell people, don't be afraid to reach out. I mean, I can't tell you, I think more often than not, when I've you know, reached out to someone, they're more than happy to help. You I know? should do it. And I, I reach out. Yeah, I'm certainly always happy to help anybody. And so, look, we're gonna wrap this up now. Again, Noah, thank you. You know for being on the podcast. I think this was great to hear someone's experience as a young coach at the high school level and things that we're seeing and mistakes. Uh, you know that maybe are being made and how to rectify those mistakes. You know how do you correct that? Look, always the kid comes first. You know the athlete comes first. How can you help that kid and continue to try to build up your knowledge and experience? You know. Thanks for having me, Bronco. Hey, no problem. And uh, your article is going to be on simplyfaster.com. Simply Simplyfaster.com, simply, simply their blog. Um, also, you know, if you ever want to check out Apex, we're on Instagram at the Real Apex Vaulting. We're also on Facebook at Apex Vaulting. Um, Twitter, Apex Vaulting, and then we also have Apex Vaulting Snapchat now. I'm trying to improve um, my content yeah, yeah, as yeah, well, my yeah, yeah, yeah. recommendation. Yeah. So, um, you know, just feel free. And if you guys ever have any questions, always feel free to contact us. Uh, we'll see you next time.